Good morning, brothers and sisters. This morning, we have been tasked with covering the symbolic ordinance of the the New Testament church. So to begin with, we're going to be doing a lot of turning around or turning in the New Testament here. But to begin this morning, we're going to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. And we'll, we'll commence with that verse here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 says this. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold to the traditions or ordinances which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. The word tradition or ordinances there in verse 15, uh, it means a regulation passed down by God to the church to be obeyed continually. I'll repeat that. The word tradition there means a regulation or tradition passed down by God to the church to be obeyed continually. Right? And we'll see there that, that there's more than one. It's traditions, not tradition. And so when we start thinking about what are some of the traditions of the New Testament church, uh, we, we, can get a, we can get a humongous list out of it, right? Uh, 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 for example, the Lord says, you shall, be known, you shall be known by this, your love for one another, right? So there's a tradition in the New Testament church that we should love one another. Why? Because we're, we're, we're all redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We, we, are, we have joy in our hearts and we love one another because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're co-heirs with him. And so there should be love amongst one another. So th- there's a lot of traditions in the New Testament. But the ones we want to concentrate on this morning are symbolic traditions, symbolic traditions or ordinances in the New Testament. Now, I do have to say the reverse is also very important, right? We, we should keep the ordinance and the tradition which God institutes to us. Those are very important. Now, we also have to be aware of the traditions of man. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So one of the things that I want to be clear right off the offset here, well, what we're going to talk about, Lord willing, this morning are traditions which God instituted. Not man, not me, not the, not the eldership at, at this assembly, right? If it was us, it's worthless. It has no meaning and there's no point to it, right? But if God says, this is what you're supposed to do, we need to listen, you know, Martin Luther was famous for a lot of things, but, but he has the five solas, right? One of them was sola scriptura, which means what? Anybody know? Scripture alone. Scripture alone. And so this morning, I, I, I want to look at these, these, these uh, traditions, these ordinances with you, and I want to look at them from the Scripture itself. Now, we, there's a lot of things that we do as tradition here and across the churches uh, in, in this world. That are man-made traditions. And they're not necessarily bad things, but they're man-made traditions. And so to those things, they could be helpful, right? I'll give you an example, right? The way we conduct ourselves in this meeting. We, we, we have our brother Andrew come up, and he does a couple songs. The kids come up, and they say their verses. Those things are all wonderful things, and those are our traditions. Now, I can't point you to a verse that says, hey, listen, the children on Sunday morning have to come up and, and say verses the cutest possible, you know? Like... No, those are all tradition. Those things can come and go because they're man-made traditions. They're good, but they're not God's traditions. But if it's God's tradition, then we need to pay attention. We need to listen. All right, we've talked about traditions and ordinances long enough. So there's three symbolic traditions I want to talk to you about this morning, right? Symbolic meaning it's, it's a physical act that symbolizes a spiritual truth. Is that clear? It's a physical act that symbolizes a a spiritual truth. And the most famous of these symbolic ordinances, you probably know, is baptism. Baptism. So turn with me to the uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 28, and we'll see that the Lord instituted baptism because baptism was around before the New Testament church, as you know. John the Baptist was baptizing people, 
And he was baptizing them. And he was telling them to repent for the kingdom of God is hand. And he was baptizing them. But now the Lord here, before he ascends to heaven, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, here we have this great commission. Here's the Lord giving his marching orders to his servants, to his disciples. And here he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that it was Christ himself who instituted baptism for the New Testament. Now, right after onset, this is kind of what my plan and goal is to this morning. As we look at each of these symbolic ordinances, I want, to, I want us to think about three things. First is, who's the author of the ordinance? Hopefully, it's always the Lord, right? Who's the author of it? What are the instructions? What, what does it look like? What, what, what details are, right? Uh, when, you, when you look at the ordinances of the Old Testament, the Lord gave the children of Israel all kinds of ordinances, all kinds of traditions, and he gave them all kinds of specific details. So the same thing we want to ask ourselves, what is this ordinance? What are the instructions? What are the details of the ordinance? And lastly, what are the meanings of it? So in baptism, here in, in, in chapter 28, we see who is the author of baptism, believer's baptism. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Okay, let's look at some of the details of it. So turn with me to the book of Acts, where the church began, in Acts chapter 2 specifically. Acts chapter 2, we see the next mention of baptism in the, in the New Testament age. Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit already had come down, and, and, and the disciples were speaking in tongues before that great multitude, and Peter was led by the Holy Spirit to open his mouth and to preach to the crowd. And afterwards, the crowd was, was cut to the heart because he, 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 he dealt with the truth with them. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, he says, God has made both Christ, has made Lord and Christ. And they said, what shall we do? Well, look at, um, look at verse um, verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And so we begin to see a little bit what it's supposed to be, right? What's the first qualification for baptism? Well, it's there in verse 14. They, the, uh, verse 41, it says, Those who gladly received his word. Well, who should be baptized? Well, those who receive his word. Let's look at another example. Turn a couple pages in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Here's another example of an individual who got baptized. In Acts chapter 8, we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch was a proselyte, was a man who came from the south to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he had enough money to buy the scroll of Isaiah. And here he is in his chariot riding down back to Ethiopia reading the scroll of Isaiah, not understanding what he was talking about. And the Holy Spirit led Philip to, to this man in his chariot. And he was reading there from Isaiah, and Philip asked him, do you understand? And he says, how can I understand if nobody's going to teach me? And so Philip began to, to, to explain to him. Uh, let's pick up here verse uh, 35. It says, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning, with the, beginning at that scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down, down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, there is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now listen, it's very important. Verse 37, it says, Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you, uh, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is, is the Christ and is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot would stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he was baptized. So in this instance of a baptism, here you have an individual who, who didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't believe. And here the evangelist Philip gave him, taught him about Jesus, starting from Isaiah chapter 6, and expounded to him. And, and this man, while he was expounding, apparently came to the realization that Jesus was not just a man, but he was the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One. And he knew enough about Scripture where he, where he saw water and he said, what hinders me from being baptized? What was the qualification Philip said? Well, if you believe with all your heart. If you believe with all your heart. And he says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God. And they went down into the water. Now, there's a couple of things we need, we, need, we, need, we need to point out in this story. One, it's called believer's baptism. It's for those who have repented from their sin and have claimed him as Lord. Without that, you're just a wet sinner, just so you know. If you get baptized and you don't recognize Jesus Christ as your Lord, you're just, you're just going in for a dip. You're going swimming. That's great. It doesn't do anything for you. It's believer's baptism. The believers are to be baptized after they are saved. Now, the second thing I want to point out from this passage um, before we move to our last passage for baptism is that they went down into the water. Now, there's a, there's a lot of controversy there with baptism. One of the things is that what form of baptism is it? You know, some people say, well, you can, you can sprinkle the water on them. Some people will pour water on them, um, which I, I don't particularly see in Scripture. And, and if you do, uh, come see me afterwards. I'm interested in seeing it. We don't see the, the, the idea of baptism as being a sprinkling or pouring of water on somebody. There's anointing, but that, that's of oil and that's something else. But you see them going into the water. So for this group of people, this meeting, when we baptize people, we go into the water. And we submerge people. They go under the water and come out of the water. That's how, that's how we baptize people because that's what we see in Scripture. Scripture only. Right? So the things that we learn from this passage, one, it's believer's baptism is for those who claim him as Lord. And two, and it's, it's baptism. It's going into the water. Now, I think we've gone through some of the details. Let's quickly talk about the meaning of baptism. What does it mean? The Lord gave us, gave us this tradition of baptism and told us how to do it. Now the question is, what is the significance of it? What does it mean? And for that, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is a wonderful passage, and it illustrates and expounds upon what believer's baptism is. Ephesians chapter 6, turn with me and we'll read a couple verses here. Ephesians chapter 6, it says, uh, beginning at verse, um, verse number 3, it says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Now, what do we learn there about baptism? We learn two things. Number one, that it's symbolic. Okay? What spiritual truth do we learn from the physical act of baptism? Well, verse number three tells us that those who were baptized uh, were baptized into the death of Christ. But what does that mean? Well, the waters of baptism are a picture of death. When you look at scripture, well, a lot of times when you see water, water is, is a type of or pictures for us death. Someone goes down into the water, it's to picture us going down into the grave with Christ. But does Christ stay there? No, he does not. And praise the Lord, you don't stay there either. <laughs> but you get picked up out of the water. And Christ rose again on the, on, on the third day. And just as Christ rose again on the third day, it says in verse 4, it says, uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so you also walk in newness of life. So the first thing I want to talk to you about, the, the symbol of baptism, is what it symbolizes. It symbolizes going down into the waters of death and being brought out, raised with him. Now, let's keep reading there in verse 5. It says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in likeness of his resurrection. Verse 6, Knowing this, this is important, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What's another thing it symbolizes? It's, a physical representation of a spiritual truth. When, it, when a soul repents before the living God 
and, and change his direction from, from, from his ways of sin and death, of selfishness and pride, to, to the living God in repentance and humility, saying, I have nothing to offer. I can do nothing to help my circumstances. I need your forgiveness. And I rely upon the blood of Jesus Christ for that. That individual is brought new life. We, we quoted it this morning, did we not? John 3, 3. Right? There has to be a born again. There has to be new life. And so when a, a person that, 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 that is repentant and is saved, there is new life. The old is put away. The new life is brought in. And so one thing that we learn from baptism is not only that you go down with Christ and you raise with Christ, but also that your old self, your old self is crucified there on the cross. Your old self is put down, on, put down in the grave. And now you are to walk in newness of life. New birth. New nature. It's supposed to change. Listen, sometimes I was, I was talking to my wife about this. In, in our culture, baptism is, is kind of... It's not kind of not like a, it's not really a big deal. It's just going down. Oh, you got baptized. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's no big deal. But you realize what what it symbolizes. It, it's it's the putting away of who you were, and now you're something else. When you look at other cultures, we, we had our, our brother Ali here a couple months ago, did we not? And he had talked about when 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 the elders kind of encouraged him to be baptized. He was, oh no, I can't be baptized. But, but why is it a big deal for him? Well, because in the Muslim culture. When he would be baptized, it would cost something. His old self would literally be put to death in a, in, in, a, in a literal sense. His parents could literally say to him, you are no longer our child. Because you were baptized as a Christian, you are no longer part of our family. There was a cost to it. He was literally, when he went down into the waters of baptism, he was literally putting his old life away. And there was a real vividness to that. That, you know, you and I, you know, praise the Lord, we're baptized and those who are baptized. But for, for most of us, it didn't cost anything. There, there wasn't, there, there wasn't a, a literal cost, but many places in this world, to be baptized, to be baptized is to put away who you were, including family and friends, a job. A lot, it would cost. It would absolutely cost. The other thing we learned from this, that it's a public announcement of a spiritual truth. When you go down into the waters of baptism, you're declaring to the world, I who I was, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but the life that I now live in the faith, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a public declaration of an internal truth. And so, believer's baptism is for believers. And so, if you're a believer this morning, and you claim him as Lord this morning, I hope you're baptized. And if you're not baptized, I, I, I would ask you to pray to the Lord, why aren't you baptized? The Lord wants you to be baptized. The Lord wants you to, to publicly announce him as Lord in your life. The Lord wants you to publicly announce to the world that you have, have, have died to the world and are walking in newness of life. It's a command of the Lord. It's a tradition of the Lord. Now, I, I do have to pause here in this moment, and I do have to make clear to, to everyone here that with these ordinances, with these traditions that we're talking about, none of them have any merit to salvation. I have to be clear on that. Because there is some, some confusion in Christendom about baptism, that you have to believe in Jesus Christ and you have to be baptized to be saved. Uh, we don't see that in Scripture. There is salvation. There is, there's, there's people being born again. There's people being filled with the Holy Spirit. Being baptized by the Holy Spirit, which is another topic, by the way. And then afterwards comes baptism. Baptism is a result of the spiritual truth that already has happened. And it's the first act of a, of a believer in obedience to his Lord. So I, I, I want to be very clear there. The other thing, too, I did want to touch here before we move on is uh, we see the practice of infant baptism or child baptism. Um, 
there is no record that I could find either of infant baptism in the Bible. The closest thing you may find is, is in Acts where you have the Philippian jailer and, and, and they went, and Paul went with the Philippian jailer and he preached uh, the gospel to him and says, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And, he, and it says that him and his household were baptized. Now, uh, we, don't know if, we don't know what age group that was. We don't know uh, what demographics the home were. One thing I do know, Believer's baptism is for believers. It's an act of obedience. It's an, it's an intellectual act of obedience. If you have enough intellect to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved, then you should have enough intellect to acknowledge and to obey his word. So the idea of infant baptism, I don't see in scripture, and it's not a practice that we uh, would follow at all. Um, it would say it's actually not scriptural. Now, some churches would say that it's, we, we, we baptize infants because it's kind of a baby dedication. That's fine. You, we, can, we dedicate babies here. We, we, we bring them all up. We bring up the parents, and we, we put our hands on them, and we pray for them. And we dedicate these children to the Lord, and that's fine. But that's not believer's baptism. That's not the baptism we're reading about here. Believer's baptism comes after the person is born again, born again. All right, I've spent too much time on the first one. Let's turn now to the second symbolic ordinance in the New Testament for the church. And, and you, you may have guessed this one. We, we, we practiced with this one this morning. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin um, reading... At um, verse 26, I believe here. Let me get in front of me here. No, verse 23. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And we had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take it, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The second major symbolic ordinance or tradition that's given to the New Testament church is the Lord's Supper or communion, as some people call it. The Lord, there in the upper room, before his death, right before he was, he was arrested, said in the book of Luke how he was eager to host this feast, how to institute the Lord's Supper to, 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 to the church. And, and he, there in the upper room, would, would, after the Passover feast was over, he would take bread and he would give thanks. And he would pass it to another, this is my body. And he would take the cup and he would give thanks, and this is my blood. And he instituted this remembrance feast, we did it this morning. We gathered around a simple table with grape juice and a loaf of bread. And we sat together and we remembered our Lord Jesus Christ. And we remember how he is worthy to be praised. He is worthy because he is creator of all things. He is Lord of all things. He, he came and became a, a created thing. And he died so that you and I, you and I, could be found worthy in his eyes, in the eyes of the Father. And so we have the Lord's Supper instituted here. Again, we want to talk about the authorship or the, the, the originator, the instruction and the meaning of it. First, who instituted it? Well, the Lord did. That's very clear. You can, you can turn to the Gospels, and, and the Lord himself hosted the first remembrance meeting of his death when he wasn't even dead yet. And here, the, the, Paul himself, Paul was out there, Paul wasn't in the upper room, and yet the Holy Spirit gave him the truth of the Lord's Supper. And he says, for what I received from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same night he was betrayed. And so we see that this was instituted. It wasn't just for the disciples in the upper room, but it was instituted to the churches who bowed down and worshiped the Lord. The remembrance meeting. Now, let's look at some of the details. Some of the simple instructions. First of all, 
there's two emblems or two symbols in the feast. First, simply there's a bread, and then there's a cup. And through it, each one symbolizes something different. First, the bread, as the Lord said, this is my body. My body who is broken for, for you. And secondly, the cup. The cup which symbolizes his blood. Now, this is, this is very interesting and unique, is that the cup which symbolizes the blood of the new covenant. New covenant. And also for the remissions of sins, it would say, in, I believe, in Mark, in the account of Mark. So we see these two emblems or these two symbols in the Lord's Supper. Ultimately, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is a remembrance meeting. It's to remember. Now, what do we remember about the Lord? What do we remember? Do we remember his miracles? No, we don't remember his miracles. Do we remember his great teachings? No, we don't remember his teachings either. Though They're great. But when we gather together at the Lord's Supper, we remember his death. Why his death? You know, you, 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 you ask the Lord, Lord, out of all things, why would you have us remember his death? Well, because he loved you. He loved you to the point of death. And so if there's anything he wants his church, his children to remember, is that he loved them. And he would die for them. And so we gather in this meeting, we gather every Sunday morning. One of the things that, that I did want to pause to, to, to kind of say, why, why do we gather here and meet every Sunday morning, the first day of the week? Do we do it just because it's a man-made tradition? Well, some can argue that. But the truth is that we follow after the New Testament pattern we see in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20, uh, I believe verse 7 says that, that the apostles would meet on the first day of the week according to their custom. So we see that towards the end of the book of Acts, when the church was, was beginning to mature, that the traditions of the apostles was that the first day of the week they would gather together to remember the Lord, to break bread, it would say. And so we take that verse. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not an absolute command. It doesn't say you must remember the Lord first day of the week. It doesn't say that. It says th this was their custom. And so we follow that custom. Because the Lord doesn't give us a specific amount of time that you're supposed to do it. What does it say in verse 26? As often as you do this. Well, how much is often? How much is too often? I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Some churches do it quarterly. Some do it biannually. Some do it annually. I, you know, That's between them and the Lord. But, but for us here and the leadership here, would, would want to follow the pattern of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 20. And so we gather and we remember the Lord the first day of the week. Which, by the way, it's kind of, a, kind of an interesting and, and, and joyous thing. When we think about, you know, as a young man, we were always told that we should start your day by reading your Bible. It's, it's good to, to wake up in the morning and, to, and the first thing to think about is to think about the Lord. And we strive to make the discipline to get up in the morning and to read and to start the day with the Lord first. You know, it's also very wonderful to think that we start the week. The first thing that we do the first day of the week is to gather together and to remember the one who loved us. And hopefully it sets the tone for the rest of the week. It puts the rest of the week in perspective for us. In that we don't live for ourselves. We are dead to ourselves and we live in newness of life in Christ Jesus because he loved us and died for us. And it's a joy to gather here on a Sunday morning on the first day of the week to remember our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we talked about a little bit about the bread and the cup. Now, let's, let's, let's unpack that a little bit for the for the details of it, because there's a lot that, that is said here in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, the bread speaks of his sacrifice for us. And the blood speaks of the new covenant. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about the new covenant. We're running out of time, so I, I, the bread is, is a wonderful truth, and we can talk about that. But, but I want to talk to you about the new covenant, because m m most people read that and they kind of gloss over it. What does it mean, the new covenant? 
the new covenant he's referring to is in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, where the Lord says, in that day I will, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It says that I will write my laws in their heart, and in their mind I will inscribe them. And their sins I will remember no more. You know, we gather here on a Sunday morning, and, and, and I've done it many years, and, and we get the cup and we take it and we move on. But do you think about what the action of it is of taking this cup and partaking of it? Do you know what it, what it means? When we consider what this covenant is, well, l- let me give you a bit of an, an image here, right? In the Old Testament, when Moses was given the, new, the, the covenant to the children of Israel, he came down from the mountain and he had all... The, the details of the covenant. And he would go before all the people and he'd give them all the terms of that, that covenant, that, 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 the Mosianic covenant. And the people would sit there and they listened to it. It was a long covenant. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses, okay, that's good. And the Lord told Moses, Moses, I want you to take an animal. I want you to take a lamb. And I want you to, 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 to kill it. And I want you to take its blood. And then I want you to go before the people and I want you to read the terms of the covenant again. And Moses would sit there and read the terms of the covenant again. And as the people said, all that the Lord will do, he would take the blood of this lamb and he would sprinkle it on the people to seal the covenant between God and man. Do you see that picture? The blood is what binds the covenant with the individual. So when our Lord Jesus Christ took this cup and said, this is my blood. Blood of what? The new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. What are you saying when you take that cup and you drink it? You're saying, Lord, I understand you're the terms of your covenant. I'm in agreement of it. And your will be done in my life. What does that mean? Well, Lord, I want you to conquer my heart a little more each day. I want you to inscribe the laws uh, into my heart and into my mind. Change who I am to reflect who you are. That's what you're saying when you take that cup. You're saying, Lord, I'm in agreement with what you're doing in my life. Now, you may say, well, that's wonderful, Jamel. But, But is it really that significant? Yes, it's incredibly significant. Because Paul continues to go on and gives us an example of what would happen if we take of this in an unworthy manner. What happens if you partake of this cup and this bread in an unworthy manner? Well, what does he mean by unworthy manner? If you take it nonchalantly, if you do it for selfish religious reasons, just so everybody around me thinks I'm I'm doing well, maybe you're partaking it and you live a life of debauchery and sin unrepented, that's an unworthy matter. And you may say to yourself, well, well, John, I don't think I ever feel worthy. I would say amen. I don't think you should feel worthy. We, 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 approach, this, we approach this table in humility, understanding that it is through the blood of Christ in which we have forgiveness of sins. And it says that we should examine ourselves. I'm running out of time, but, but it's an important principle that, that, that this table institutes for us. Here, because we do it every week, you, you need to examine yourself at least once a week. And you need to look to the living God and say, Lord, Lord search me, O God, like the psalmist would say. And, and show me if there's any wicked way in me, Lord. And if he shows you, bend down your knees and repent and ask for forgiveness. And then eat. You know, that's an important point. Uh, so, some people would sit there and say, well, you know, I, I just don't, I, I did this this week. I just, I, I can't, I can't partake. Well, look what it says. In verse 28, it says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. One of the things I haven't necessarily touched is, listen, the Lord's Supper is a tradition, but the Lord, it's, it's the Lord's last dying request. It, 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 it's not optional. It's not optional. If you can be here to remember the Lord, number one, why would you not want to be here to remember the Lord? He died for you. He loves you. And number two, he asked us to. His last dying request is that you would would gather together and remember him. Remember that he loved you. Remember that he died for you. Why wouldn't you want to be here? 
And so the principle of you examine yourself beforehand, you examine what you are, what you've done, and you go before the Lord and, and, and clear your conscience. You ask for forgiveness if forgiveness needs to be asked. You, you reconcile with your brother or sister if reconciling needs to be done. And then you come. Let me tell you, it's a sobering thing to sit on these chairs knowing how sinful we are and being handed that bread and that cup. But the Lord asked us to do it. Asked us to remember how he loved us. So to drink in an unworthy manner is, as it says here, is to put yourself in judgment. So let's go back to what the covenant was. The covenant was is that the Lord is going to write, write his laws in your heart and describe them in your mind. And every time you come here and you partake and, you, and you're saying, Lord, yes, keep writing them. Keep inscribing them. Keep chipping them in there. Because every, every, every week I walk away and, and I seem to fill it up with some wax and, and just forget about these things. But if we live a life contrary to it, and we are sons and daughters of God, our Heavenly Father is going to chastise us. He's going to begin to punish us. He's going to, 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 to cause us to see what we're doing. And Paul says, this is why some of you are sick and some of you are sleeping. And that's a stern warning, isn't it? The Lord's Supper is not something that we should take lightly. It's not something we should approach nonchalantly, mundane. We should approach it with reverence. We should approach it how the Lord wants us to approach it. Again, I, I don't take it because I'm saying it. I am nobody. I am nobody. Look at the Word of God. Read it for yourself. Have the, have the Holy Spirit convict you of these things. I, I, can, I can tell you these things to I'm blue in the face. It does not matter. Do not, sh- listen, listen to me. Do not show up here at the Lord's Supper because I told you to. Because you know what? That's worthless. Show up here to the Lord's Supper to remember the Lord because your heart wants to remember the one who saved you. You come here prepared because he loved you. Don't do it because the elders tell you or because I tell you. It, we're nobodies. The word of God tells you to. The Lord himself pleads with you. Remember me. Remember me. All right. So much can be said. I, and, I, and I muddled the whole instruction and, uh, and meaning thing there. But the instruction is simple. There's bread. There's wine. It's simple. It, it's actually kind of, kind of beautiful the way the Lord made, made the Lord's Supper. It can be celebrated anywhere in the world in any economical condition. It's simply bread and and fruit of the vine in simplicity. It doesn't take some some very expensive loaf. It's just simple in humility. And the meaning of it. I, I, I love the words there in verse 26. It says, for as often as you eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You know, it could have said you proclaim Jesus Christ's death till he comes. But he said the Lord. That's a beautiful thing when you consider it. You know, this world will recognize that Jesus lived and that he died. And they'll declare that, yeah, he died. The Muslims will say Jesus was a good person and he died. And they declare his death. We declare not just Jesus the man but we declare him as God the Father we read in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. We declare him as Lord. We declare him as Lord. He was far more than just a good man, but he was the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so I encourage you to come to Lord's Supper. Come to Lord's Supper examined. Come to Lord's Supper with a heart of worship. With a heart of worship. We, we come to remember. You know, I'm sorry, I, I'm belaboring this point, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, when, when we gather together for memorial service for someone that passed away, 
and, and we all sit together and, and we hear family members go up and, and they eulogize the individual. And, and in our hearts and in our minds, that individual who's no longer with us is brought to the forefront of our minds. And, 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 and the kindness and the gentleness and the, and the goodness of the individual is brought to our hearts and it brings us to tears because we don't see him no more. That's all a worship service is. We gather together and we bring, to, the men here would bring to the hearts of the assembly what the Lord has done for them. And it should fill and refresh our minds at the beginning of the week. All right. The third symbolic ordinance. Now, I will say this. This, this symbolic ordinance is not necessarily recognized by all churches, but I believe it's one of the symbolic ordinances because I, I, I see it in Scripture, okay? And it, it's actually in, in this very same chapter. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And if you look at down at verse 2, it says, it says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions which I have delivered to you. Now listen, that word tradition is the same word as tradition that we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it's so the same thing that, that, that Paul's talking about in, in, in chapter in verse 23 when he says, that I, which I believe from the Lord I have delivered to you. So what are these ordinances, right? Verse 2, it says, uh, verse 3, it says, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and that the head of, uh, head of woman is man and that the head of Christ is God. Every man praying and prophesying with his head covered dishonors his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head for that is one uh, that is uh, that is one and the same as if her head were shaved and we'll pause there I, I hope you see the link there between traditions and ordinances given to the church and this is one that most people don't recognize here's a symbol and a tradition given by the apostles inspired by the Lord given to him by the Holy Spirit and most people just kind of gloss over these verses. And they'll say, well, this doesn't apply to me. This, this was more cultural, they would say. But I, I don't see any of this being cultural, to be honest with you. And I'll expound to it a little bit. But here's what I want to get at with these verses. And we can sit here and we can talk sermons about these verses. But I want to talk about two things. Because the idea of the head covering, which is, which is taboo nowadays, that the women have to cover their heads is really not about is really not about superiority is really not about worth because that's the first thing that that this world does is they see well the women cover their heads and the men don't well the, the, the men must be better that's not that's not what the passage teaches it has nothing to do with worth or value it simply has to do with order with order headship is what they call it headship you know we, we submit ourselves to authority all the time. And, and, and the world has no problem with it. You know, we, we get on the road and we start driving and we say, well, 45 miles an hour, okay, I better go 55. <laughs> but I, we're submitting to an authority, are we not? We're submitting to an authority. Listen, if you worked at Chick-fil-A, right, and you were employed by Chick-fil-A, and you show up in your pajamas and some house shoes, what do you think would happen? Well, you, you may get fired. You know why? Because in their stores, they say, our employees are going to wear this uniform. And if you're going to work there, you're going to have to submit to what we tell you to wear. Wow. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, uh, we do it all the time. We submit to authority all the time. The world submits to authority all the time. Why? Because... There's order there. If there's going to be order, there has to be authority, and there has to be submission to it, to authority. Let me tell you, if there's no submission to authority and there is no authority, what is that called? It's anarchy. It's chaos. Absolute chaos. So, so when the church, all of a sudden people look into the church, the world looks in the church and says, well, they'll look at the head coverage and say, well, what, what is that? Oh, are, you, are men superior than women? has nothing to do with that. simply has to do with order. With order. 
So very quickly, let's go over some of these verses. Uh, I, I will, I, unless you, we will not be able to do justice to the entire section, but I do want to make some things clear to you. Let's talk about headship real quick. Um, here we, we see the, the basic principle. It says, but I want you to know that, that the head of every man is Christ, that the head of every woman is man, and that the head of Christ is God. Now listen, this is the order in which God instituted in the church. Now pay attention. First of all, that the head of man is Christ. What, what does it mean to be the head of Christ, the, the head of man being Christ? It means that you will represent, you'll be the representation of Christ here in this meeting. Now, man, I don't know about you, but that kind of scares me. Because I'm not exactly Christ-like all the time. In fact, sometimes it's very few times. But that's a responsibility that men have to bear. Secondly, the head of every woman is man. Ladies, according to this verse, you represent mankind. You represent all of us. You symbolize all of us. And lastly, the head of Christ is God, God the Father. Now listen, before you get all in a tiff about, you know, why am, I, why am I below him and so forth, listen, even Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, submits himself to God the Father. Submits himself to God the Father. That is God's order. That is, that is God's order for the church. So, Let's move on. It says, verse 3, it says, Every man prophesying, or pro- uh, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head, and every woman who prays and prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So what is, the, what, what is the, the basic principle of it all? Well, to the men, you're to have your head uncovered. When you, when you pray and prophesy, what does that mean to pray and prophesy? Well, it, it's quite simple. When you talk to God, that's prayer. And when you talk for God, that's prophesying. Whenever you talk to God or you talk for God, your head should be uncovered in the church. That's what it says. Now, ladies, whenever you pray and prophesy, whenever you talk to God or talk for God, in the church, your head should be covered. That's God's order. That's the way he designed it. That, that's the order of the New Testament church. Now, I don't want to get caught in the weeds a little bit too much here, but uh, there is some concern about this idea of covering, right? There's some debate about covering. So I, I just want to clear this up, and then we'll, we'll probably close in a word of prayer after I, I clear some of these things up. Um, if you look down at verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 14, it says, Doesn't the nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is dishonoring to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her, hair is given for her for a covering. Okay, and so you'll, you'll hear some people in Christianity say, well, you see that verse there? The hair of the woman is given for her covering. Therefore, the verses that you just talked about, the woman has to cover her head. It doesn't make sense. It, it, her hair is her covering, right? Well, I, I know that's what it sounds like, but it, it, it's not what it's talking about. If we look at the, 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 the Greek the word for covering there and the word for covering at the beginning of the chapter are two separate words. Two separate words completely. Now, in, in verses 14 and 15, it's talking about the natural covering of the woman. It, it actually goes back to glory, which, which I would love to talk to you about more, but it talks about glory. Now, there's three kinds of glory that we see here in this passage. We see the glory of Christ. We see the glory of man. And we see the glory of woman. Now, why do you ladies have to cover your head? Well, number one, because you represent mankind. And in the church, the glory of man should not be revealed. The glory of man shall not be revealed. And so you you put a veil or you cover your head with a symbol of power and authority. For what? To not expose the glory of God, the glory of man. Now, the women... You have your own glory, don't you? You have your hair. Now listen, it's, it's very obvious, you know, men. I, I, my glory is very, very little or, or none, right? Women, you, you have beautiful long hair. It is your glory. 
And so when you veil your head, when you cover your head, you're not just covering the glory of mankind, but you're covering your own glory. And that's a wonderful thought. Listen, when I sit here, or I'm sorry, when I stand here, and I open God's word and I begin to, to, to expound his word and to bless you with what he's blessed me, and I see you ladies with your head covered, it reminds me that there is no place for man's glory here. There is no place for for my own pride and my own glory. This place is for Christ and him only. And whenever that is not true, we fail. We fail miserably. Again, the symbol of the head covering, it's not one of value. It's one of order, headship, and glory. And a lot more can be said uh, concerning nature itself, backs this up, and even the angels observe. A lot can be said about this, but we are, we're over our time. I will say this. These are some of the, some of these are difficult topics. There's some discourse on these things. Listen, we would gladly discuss some of these things. If you have questions or concerns, or I didn't say something clearly, which is very possible, please come see me afterwards. We can get together and we can talk about these things from his word, solo scriptura. Sola Scriptura. And we humbly seek to follow his word. When I'm not standing up here and saying that Boulevard Bible Chapel has the right way and the only way. All we're saying is this is how we humbly look upon his word. This is what we see in scripture and we seek to follow him. Are we perfect? Far from it. But until the Lord reveals otherwise from his word, this is what we're going to follow. Let us pray. Our Heavenly God and Father, Lord, we we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for these wonderful symbols that you've given given to us, Lord. Lord, we we pray that you help us to to understand these things in our own hearts, Lord. Help us to look on these things more intently for ourselves. Lord, help us with your Holy Spirit to to grab these truths and to lay lay them hold for ourselves and let us follow and abide in them, Lord that they may bring glory to you and not us. Father, we, we, we ask your blessing upon uh, this day and, and what, was, what was said from your word, Lord. Let, let, remove anything that is, that is of me, Lord, uh, and, and edify your son in, in all that was said. I ask all these things, your son's precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.